The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. This can be found on page 299 of your Blue Pew Bibles. Page 299 of your Blue Pew Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. We'll be reading through verse 24 this morning. First Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8, the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, Look, Your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, 
Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 9 beginning at verse 18. This can be found on page 814 of your Blue Pew Bibles. Page 814 of your Blue Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. We'll be reading through verse 26 this morning. While Jesus was still saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, He said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Jesus loves you. That's a vital thing to remember. Jesus loves you. The incarnate Son, who is very God of very God, through whom all things were created and for whom all things exist. This Jesus, he loves you. That's critical to remember as we connect the portion of God's word that we're looking at this morning with the portion of God's word that we looked at just last week. Last week we saw that even the disciples of John the Baptist were utterly flabbergasted by the way that Jesus just shattered the norms of pious Jews in his own day. So they come to Jesus and say, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they do not fast? As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, These disciples grouped themselves together with the Pharisees in the practice of pious, voluntary fasting. And they wonder why Christ's disciples, as one more group within the context of first century Judaism, are not engaged in a similar practice. They're saying to Jesus, look, we fast, they fast, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus' reply is basically this. You don't yet understand who I am, and you do not yet understand 
what I have come to do. See, you fast in sadness because you're longing for the day when the Lord will finally return to Zion. And here I am. Uh, Can the guests at a wedding uh, mourn and fast while the groom is there with them, ready to celebrate the wedding? Of course not. And furthermore, you can't take the, the new wine that I am bringing of my acts and the new covenant and stuff them into the old wineskins of the practices that you've been doing up until now. And at that very moment, so I want you to see here in the beginning of this passage we're looking at this morning, at that very moment, a desperate father comes to Jesus and falls on his knees and pleads with Jesus for his daughter's life. He pleads that Jesus would come and heal his dying daughter before it is too late. That means that we're intended to see these two passages as part of one story. See, the miracles that Jesus is about to do of healing this woman that is hemorrhaging for 12 years and raising this man's daughter from the dead are intended to be confirmations of what Jesus has just taught. They are confirmations of who Jesus is. They are confirmations of what Jesus came to do. See, because Jesus loves you, he has not come simply to give you a new set of religious practices to replace the old. Right? It is though they did things one way, but now with the new covenant, we're going to do things a different way. Because Jesus loves you, he has come to give you new life. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, a desperate father. Second, a compassionate savior. And third, new wine means new life. Let me give those to you again. A desperate father, a compassionate savior, and new wine means new life. We begin with the desperate father. Please look at verses 18 and 19 with me. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. This man who falls on his knees before Jesus is described as a ruler. Uh, Mark and Luke both give us his name. His name is Jairus, and they identify him as a particular type of ruler. He's the ruler of the local synagogue. Now, that would mean two things. We don't think of what it means to be a ruler of a synagogue. We don't have any of those anymore. But it would have meant two things in that context of the first century. First, this man was an important religious figure. But second, it would have meant that he was also rather wealthy. Um, the, the way that people became rulers of synagogues is because they were patrons of the synagogue. They were wealthy individuals who took care of the building, the finances. They actually had authority to structure the worship service as well, to decide who got to give the homily that day, who read the scriptures that day. But very important to the ancient Jews, the building needed some work, this person would dip into their own pocket and pay for it. So this person is both an important religious figure and he is quite wealthy. Um, One of the ways we might get a sense of that is just to think 
um, what it would be like if a bunch of us were hanging around talking about some community project, and up walks a very prominent senior executive in a $3,000 Italian suit. You know what we'd all do? We would all instinctively defer to this person. We would recognize by the robe that he is wearing, this expensive Italian suit and his posture, this person is important in some way. That's what the people there would have done with this man. They all would have known who he was. They all would have naturally deferred to him. And yet this man comes before Jesus and he simply falls on his knees. He's not interested in preserving his dignity. And beloved, let me tell you, if you were carrying your little girl in your arms into the emergency room, you couldn't care less what other people think about you. All you want to find is the medical professionals who are going to make your little girl well. That's what this desperate father was doing. You'll notice that I said desperate father rather than grieving father. Oddly enough, our generally excellent English Standard Version, along with a large number of English translations, translate this passage as though this girl is already dead. Um, I say oddly enough because this story is really important. And it's also recorded in Mark and in Luke, in both places in greater detail. In our very same translation, the ESV, which as I say is an excellent translation, uh, when it renders uh, Mark's account, it reads like this. My little daughter is at the point of death. While the ESV translation of Luke 8, 41-42 says this. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, the Greek of this passage actually allows you to translate it both ways. Right? It, it translates it with respect, it, the meaning is with respect to the present, either something right before the present moment or right after so it could be translated, has just now died, or is it the point of death? And one of us could have hoped, that would be me, um, but the translators of uh, Mark and Luke would have gotten together with whoever translated Matthew in this passage and convinced them that it ought to have been, she's at the point of death. That both fits the narrative structure of Matthew better, but there are actually details in Luke and Mark's account that require that his daughter is still alive when he heads out to see Jesus. For now, I ask you just to trust me on that. Um, you don't have to get with Nathan after the service to ask him to check my Greek. I'm going to make good on this in about 15 minutes when we get to the third section of, of this, uh, this, my sermon today. But it's important for you to understand this girl is still alive and about to die, or you're going to miss a lot of the drama of what is going on in this passage. So the ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus as an absolutely desperate father. His only daughter, who is just 12 years of age, is on the brink of dying. And Jesus is his last and his only hope. And yet in the midst of this father's desperation we also hear the voice of faith. He pleads with Jesus. My daughter is at the point of death. 
But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. What great relief this man must have felt when Jesus immediately gets up and starts following him back to his house. See, Jesus cared about this man, and Jesus cared about this man's 12-year-old daughter. But the healing was going to be interrupted in a rather striking fashion. Look at verses 20 through 22 with me. Verses 20 through 22. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Now that's a beautiful story. But before you see this story through the eyes of this woman who Jesus heals, I want you to see this story through the eyes of the desperate father who, his daughter's about to die. Jesus has gotten up and is going to heal his daughter. And now he's not going there anymore. See, the, the accounts in Mark and Luke make clear this event takes more than just a few moments. Jesus takes time to identify this woman. Time to talk with her. To teach her what's going on. Time that this desperate father did not have as his daughter was hanging on the brink of death. Yet Jesus has compassion on this stranger, uh, someone who to the eyes of the crowd would not be nearly as important as the ruler of the synagogue. But Jesus cared about her. To understand this woman's plight, we need to recognize that she was suffering from more than a physical ailment although hemorrhaging for 12 years is a pretty significant physical ailment uh, that anyone would want to be cured from. But in addition to the physical discomfort and debility, there was the relentless problem of impurity, what we call ceremonial uncleanness. That is, when blood comes out of you, according to Old Testament law, it made you ceremonially unclean. Uh, not only could this woman not touch anybody, even if someone sat in a place where she sat or lie down in a place where she had lain, they would become defiled, ceremonially unclean as well. And so what this meant is, not for a moment, but for 12 years, this woman was largely isolated from Jewish society. She could not have worshipped in the synagogue with the rest of the people of God. She couldn't hug her nephews and nieces. She was in many ways an outcast. And as Mark tells us, she was desperate. She spent everything that she had on physicians seeking to get well. But instead of getting well, she just grew worse. Do you understand how desperate she was? And we should think a bit about those ceremonial laws. These aren't just weird things. See, the basic idea here of this sort of uncleanness is anything that is supposed to be inside you whether that's blood or semen or pus, some sort of discharge, when that's 
which is inside of you comes out, it makes you ceremonially unclean. What's the message? You're not good on the inside. Right? That's what we often want to tell ourselves. You know, I did something wrong, but I meant well. I have a good heart. And these ceremonial laws would have regularly reminded faithful Jews, on the inside, you are unclean. You need healing to come to you from outside of yourself. You need God to do it. You can't clean yourself up. Now, for most Jews, if they were faithful, remember, not all Jews worried about this stuff, but if they were faithful, they were Torah observant, they would have had this reminder from time to time in their life. They would have become ceremonially unclean. Uh, They would have um, had to go through a series of rituals. Often it took until that night. And then they'd be reintegrated in the people of God again. They've learned their lesson, and they rejoice as being part of the people of God. But for this poor woman, it was 12 straight years. Can you imagine being cut off from the people of God and from those you love in this way for 12 years? This woman, like the father before her, was absolutely desperate. Just like this desperate father, this woman's last and only hope was Jesus. In utter desperation, she takes a radical, risky, and bold step. She comes up to Jesus, and she grabs on and touches the hem of his garment. Probably more literally, the tassels that Jewish men would wear on their garments. It was part of their, um, the law of God from the Old Testament. And many Jews would keep that. Very likely Jesus was doing that as well. There's an interesting thing about the edge or the tassels of a Jewish man's garment. They were boundary markers. They were designed to mark out that the person wearing this garment has been set apart by God. Set apart by God as belonging to him in a special way. That is, they mark out this man as being positionally holy. And the idea, of course, is, as a Jewish man would see, I've been marked out as one of God's people. That positional holiness, the reminder of it, would push them on toward practical holiness of by God's grace and in God's power, seeking to live according to the Torah. And the irony is, is the very point that marked out Jesus, or any Jewish man, as being positionally holy, this woman was going to touch him and risk making him unclean. Do you understand that tension? Right? This woman was taking an extraordinary risk because if she's not healed, she makes the great rabbi ceremonially unclean. And if she does that, everybody is going to condemn her. But instead of her becoming unclean, in an instant she is healed. That tells us something really important about Jesus. Instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the woman instantly becomes healed. See, Jesus is unlike us. On my inside, I am unclean. I need healing. Jesus is clean, both outwardly in his actions, but also inwardly throughout every single bit of his being. This means that when blood came out of the ancient people of God, it marked them out as being ceremonially unclean. But the blood of Jesus Christ, instead of making you unclean, cleanses you from all sin. Jesus is wonderfully different than us 
in this respect. And it turns out that what Jesus does for this woman is about far more than healing her. Um, regrettably, there's simply no good way to bring this out in an English translation. Uh, translators have a very, very tough job, and this is one of the struggles that they face. It's quite clear in this passage that the woman is coming to Jesus to be healed of her physical uncleanness. But that's not all. Remember, she's not just physically unclean. She's being alienated from the people of God. And she uses a word for what she's seeking after that is never used anywhere else in Matthew to refer to physical healing. In fact, it's not a normal word for physical healing at all. It's the word saved. Uh, If you translate this woodenly, what this woman is doing is she keeps saying to herself, "If if only I touch his garment, I will be saved. And what Jesus says to her in verse 22 is this, Take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. Now, our problem is if the translator said saved, we would miss all the physical aspects of it because we would jump right away to saving from her sins. So maybe you could plug in a word like delivered. That might be the best you can do. She, she comes to Jesus. She's walking up behind him, and she keeps telling herself. The, the, the Greeks tell us over and over again. She's telling herself, if only I can touch him, I will be delivered, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your faith has delivered you. I think that's still a little bit weak because every one of Matthew's first readers and first hearers, when they hear Jesus' words, would have heard him say, your faith has saved you. She was delivered from her sins, not simply from her physical ailment. She was saved through her faith by Jesus. Uh, One additional support for this reading comes from the unique title that Jesus gives to her. Um, This is the only place in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus refers to an adult woman as daughter. Um, You know, if you think about it, it's kind of a strange thing in one sense to call a, a fellow adult son or daughter. Why does Jesus do that? And the answer is both obvious and beautiful. Daughter's a relational word. It's a tender word. See, Jesus is saying that when this woman put her trust in him, he's now in a personal relationship with her. He cares about her. In fact, that word also triggers us to think about the desperate father with her 12-year-old daughter. The daughter's 12 years old. This woman has been suffering from hemorrhaging for 12 long years. And so the passage is telling us that Jesus cares about this woman with the same compassion and the same love that the desperate father has for her own daughter. Please remember this in your own life. In the midst of your own hardships and alienation, Jesus Christ is a compassionate Savior for you. Jesus loves you. And he has come to restore you to full communion with God's people. And he has come to wipe away your sins. But what about the dying young girl and her desperate father? Look at verses 23 through 26 with me. 
And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So Luke gives us a fuller version of the story, as does Mark. And Luke tells us that while Jesus was still speaking, that is, speaking to the woman, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Remember, a little earlier I asked you to trust me, but this girl was still alive. Uh, The point is, is that this, this story from Luke only makes sense if the master goes out to Jesus while his daughter is still alive, desperately hoping that Jesus will come in time to heal her. And now the message comes with that Horrible news. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter has died. These are probably the most crushing words that this father would ever hear. And he must have thought, if only Jesus hadn't stopped to heal this woman. You see how conflicted he would have been. Oh yeah, I mean, it was good that Jesus healed her, but he had compassion on her. But he stopped to heal her, and while he did that, my own beloved daughter has died. If we remember that this ruler was perhaps the most prominent man in his community, we will not be surprised that a crowd of mourners has already gathered. Undoubtedly, many had gathered before this girl had even passed away. And as was their custom, the wailing and lamenting was both open and emotional. And then Jesus does the strangest thing. He tells all these people that are mourning, go away. Can you imagine someone doing that at a funeral that you're at for one of your loved ones? He tells the lamenting crowd to go away. There is no need for mourning. There is no need to comfort this distraught family. This little girl is not going to be buried tonight. She is not dead. She is only sleeping. And the crowds respond by deriding him with laughter. By the way, I don't know what you would do, but just imagine yourself being at a funeral and someone walks in and the body's laying there in the casket. And they go, don't worry, he's not dead. I mean, you would be livid yourself. And maybe laughter would be the kindest response that you could have. But I want you to notice something. These people are actually put outside. I think the answer of the question, it's by who, is by the master. Uh, By the synagogue ruler who had come and pleaded with Jesus. That is, I think this man is still expressing his faith. He had had confidence that Jesus could heal his daughter. And now with desperate faith, he has confidence that Jesus can raise her, even from the dead. Remember when Jesus says... um, She's sleeping. He's using a euphemism. Everybody knows that she's dead, right? They know what death was like. They'd seen her die. Jesus is just saying this death is not final. I'm going to raise her once again. 
As one scholar puts it, the official's daughter is already dead, and the people in the house know it. They have already begun the sorrowful process of weeping and wailing, letting their grief have full vent over the lovely young life cut short. But we're told the crowd is put outside, and I suggest, although we're not told, but that must have been by the command of the ruler of the synagogue, demonstrating a type of faith in the midst of his tears and desperation. Then Jesus simply goes into the home, he takes the girl by the hand, and she gets up as though she were simply taking a nap. What joy this father must have felt. I mean, he must have been overwhelmed. I mean, everyone else in the family too, but we've been looking at the father. His daughter, who was dead, is alive to him again. And there must have been an extraordinary sense of awe over who Jesus is and what he has done. But what does this tell us about Jesus? I think there's a powerful message for us in the remarkable simplicity of the way in which Jesus does this miracle. Think back on our Old Covenant reading this morning where Elijah is used by God to raise a girl from the dead. Is Jesus simply another Elijah figure? Well, in Old Covenant reading, we heard this. When the woman's son dies, she laments to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. It could hardly be any clearer that Elijah does not raise this kid from the dead. Elijah is simply pleading with the Lord, and the Lord raises this woman's son from the dead. That means when we map Jesus, this passage from Matthew, onto the passage from 1 Kings, we realize that Jesus is not in the role of Elijah. Jesus is in the role of Almighty God. In his own power, he simply takes her hand, and Jesus demonstrates that he is the resurrection and the life. Now let us try to tie these miracles back into our Lord's teaching about the new thing that he has come to do. As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, could there be a more effective way of communicating that the new wine has begun to flow for the marriage feast of the bridegroom than to narrate Jesus' authority over death itself. See, Jesus did not come simply to give you, to give the people of God a new set of religious practices for us to observe. 
He came to give us new life. Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And beloved, this Jesus loves you. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, he loves you with an everlasting love. Please remember this in the midst of your own hardships and alienation. Jesus Christ is a compassionate Savior. Jesus loves you, and he has come to restore you to full communion with the people of God. Jesus loves you, and he has come to save you from your sins. And because Jesus loves you, the day will come when just as he raised up Jairus' daughter, he will take your hand and raise you up too with all the people of God, and you shall dwell in the house of your God forever. Amen.